benefit if we were just to continue singing as we've been doing this morning. Ignore the clock. He evidently does not know who he's speaking to. <laughs> My best friend down there, John Wells, knows that those are dangerous words, and yet he said the same thing to me. The other thing is I spend most of my time in Mexico where we don't pay much attention to calendars, much less clocks. So um, let me just see if I get this working. Okay. When you're ready to project what I have, oh, connect, airplay. Let's see if we need to do that. Oh, disconnect it. Let me connect. And then we'll be fine. So let me say, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Um, it's a privilege, it's a blessing, and um, I, I do tend at times to speak quickly. You can blame that on my roots. My mom and dad are here with me, Bob and Bertha. They live here in Dartmouth, and uh, I was raised in Newfoundland, and that means that when I read this speak really quick, I talk really quick like this, I don't know if you're going to understand what I'm going to be saying, so I will try to slow it down time and time, okay? And hopefully you will follow what I say. If it gets too much, just go, whoa. <laughs> Counting on you, Sam. Um, so just quickly, because the time will go, um, what are some of my objectives for today? And uh, there's a lot of things I would love to be able to cover off and do with you, but that's going to be really complicated. So the first thing I want to do is kind of just introduce myself um, so you know who I am and um, tell you a little bit, and I underscore the word little, uh, what we've been doing in Mexico. So when I get to that portion, I'm going to be speaking through some of these things as I have coordinated pictures that will be playing behind me to kind of go in with what I'm saying. I'm not going to be stopping and talking about each particular thing. I'll try to move through that quickly. What I want to get at is a big picture of what God's doing. Because uh, when I teach down in San Luis, Rio Colorado, across the border in Mexico, in our little church, our assembly there, um, I'm going through Ephesians right now, so I've been really appreciating the truths that come from that. And I like to go um, consecutively, uh, expositionally, through a book. The best way to study the Bible is the way it was written a book at a time. Come to a place like this, and it's hard. I'm only here for today. So I'm going to pick up two big themes. Um, so I'm going to get at the essence of Ephesians really, really quickly, and hopefully learn two critical lessons that you can take away, uh, tattooed on your mind, and then see how that fits into God's big plan what God's big purpose is via the gospel. And that is the core of this. What is his purpose and then his power actually in the gospel to bring that to fruition? That's where we're going to be going today. So I should introduce myself, and uh, you're only looking at half of me. The best half of me would love to be here today, and uh, she's not. Um, she's Joan, and uh, she uh, would send her regards, but right now she is probably driving our, our old white van, picking up some people down in the state of Sonora in Mexico for our church service down there today. Well, she shouldn't be driving there yet because it's only 8.42 in the morning. But um, the other part of my, my, so you get to know who I am, is this fine group behind me. Now, this was taken um, about a year ago. And just so you get to know the names, not that you need to know that, I'll show you really quickly. That's me in the middle, my wife, Joan. And then by birth order, Timothy, Isaac. And then you have Leah, Mark, Thomas, he's the only one still home with us. And then we've had two additions to our family. Uh, these latest two additions, these great little girls here, one is Victoria, married to Timothy a year and a half ago, and Taylor and Isaac, who just got married in August. So we're expanding, and we're growing. 
And, uh, you know, we keep thinking they move out as they get older. Well, ours move away because they have to. But uh, we're thrilled to have more in the family. So that's who we are. Really briefly, um, where I'm from and, and, you know, some things just about me. I was raised in St. John's, Newfoundland. I lived, lived there. My, my accent will come back. If you put me with another Newfie, I can speak my third language, just so you know. Okay, some of us wouldn't understand that. I am a townie, so I grew up in St. John's. Um, but I, I lived the first portion of my life there. God saved me and reached me by his grace and the gospel when I was 20, living in the city of Toronto downtown. And God changed my life. Um, he began to work in me. And he hasn't finished that yet, obviously. Um, I moved back to Newfoundland. I went to Memorial University. I finished there. I took a job in the, in the packaged goods industry. I eventually moved to Dartmouth, to Halifax. I wanted to stay around here. I lived here for six years. Um, and I, I, I couldn't stay. Um, the company I was working with, uh, P&G, wanted to keep moving me. So eventually I, I quit. And um, that's where John and I did something together. And he has now risen to the echelons of, of his industry and doing what he's doing in the flooring world. But we did something together. We did, I did, took another job here. Eventually we moved to Toronto. And then three and a half years after being in Toronto in Langstaff, assembly where you would all be most welcomed. And I mean that sincerely. And they would be the first to tell you that. Um, I, uh, my wife and I, in a long story, felt that God was calling us to something other than the industry in which we were working. And so, with our five kids, it went from one to ten. We uh, sold a house, packed things up in a trailer, and didn't speak a word of Spanish, had never been to Mexico, but we headed out. And we moved to Mexico uh, to preach the gospel and to tell people about this wonderful Savior of whom we have been singing together today. Um... I was just going to give you my summary right here because this is my blurb if anybody really wants to know it. Uh, Spanish-speaking, dual citizen, Newfoundlander, saved by God's grace and afforded the privilege of serving God by serving others, preaching the gospel and seeing local churches established and Christian community hopefully formed. And other than that, I like to ride a bike. Um, I really enjoy cycling. So that's me. This particular country here is a, a dear place in my heart, Mexico. I'm going to talk just real quickly a little bit about this for a minute. Uh, we say Mexico lindo y querido. Is there anybody here speak Spanish? ¿Alguien aquí habla español? ¿Nadie aquí que habla español? No me digan. Wow. Okay. Nobody here speaks Spanish? Guys. That can only mean one thing. You need somebody who speaks Spanish to move here. Not even one amen? Like... <laughs> Um, yeah, so in Mexico, we live on a border city. It brings all kinds of blessings and challenges. You may be thinking about Christmas. This is not a Christmas motif I've included here. These are the colors of the flag, red and green. Don't get carried away. Just finished Halloween. But the border cities are different than other regions of Mexico. Um, Mexico is a diverse country and a large country. You may not realize, but we have international volleyball games sometimes. This is on the border. You don't hear about this in your news, do you? Um, this is literally on the border, playing a game of volleyball um, from the U.S., Arizona, into Mexico. It doesn't always happen. People come up on trains, though, because they want to cross. They want to get to a place where they can realize their hopes and their dreams. You saw a picture of a Jeep driving across the wall. Those things happen. Um, that guy didn't calculate his angles very well. He got hooked up. But people come because they are fleeing from things that are horrendous. Mixed in that are a whole different kinds of people. 
Um, sometimes the first person they meet is a guy that looks like this, a Customs Border Patrol. I know many of them. They do a lot of work because the border is very difficult. So many of them start by coming to a place like this, and what you see in the distance is the fence, and what they leave behind are things like shoes and water bottles, and the desert can be littered with this stuff as people are coming through, making their assault or their, their, their attempt to get to a land of hopes and of dreams. What I know and what you know and what every person saved by God's grace knows is that the longing in their heart can only be met by God via the gospel. Whatever it is they are fleeing from, that to which they hope they are running, can only be met, regardless of our circumstances or our background, can only be met by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where you come to understand that I have been loved and God has estimated in me a worth that I didn't even know about myself. And this is the hope that we share with others. Many that come end up like this. The vast majority, actually. Well, yeah, probably the vast majority are caught like this. But many end up like this. These are graveyards around Yuma where I live. I live in Yuma, Arizona, which is about three miles as a crow flies from the border. We drive about 15, 20 miles to get to the nearest crossing. I go back and forth to New Mexico daily. Um, right now, where we currently live, we lived in Mexico for eight or nine years, um, but these are just like potter fields. If, you'll, if you look at these headstones, here's what you would see. It basically, it will just say, unidentified remains, a date, a sector it was found in the desert, and just a body dropped in a hole. Countless thousands. Most bodies aren't ever discovered. What happens on the border will never, ever reach your news. The human trafficking, the sex trafficking, the child trafficking, the drug trafficking, the money laundering, the guns and the arms, it is a war zone. And you don't always hear that. So it's complicated. It's a very, very complicated issue. Many that find themselves on the wrong side of that wall have loved ones on the other side. And for many of them, the closest they will get will be something like this. A hand through a fence to try to make contact with someone that they love. It's not an easy there's no easy solutions. When Jesus returns, when his millennial reign is established, things will be different. But till that time, there are challenges here. When I think of Mexico, really quickly, I want to share with you what I think about and what comes to my mind. And I often sum, sum it up in these three ways. This is what I do. This is, where, this is a summary of my life. There's a foundation. God began to work in my life. God began to work in your life. God, via the work that we try to do, begins to work in the lives of others. And that starts with the gospel. Every single one of us has a need of coming to know Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross for me. That's a foundation that is starting out. After that in Christian life, and I'll pick up on some of these themes later, there is the formation, there is teaching, and this is where you begin to build up, you begin to learn that God has intentions, that God has plans, that God didn't just save you to keep you from hell, he actually has something bigger and more glorious and more wonderful in this abundant life to share with you. But you soon, soon learn that there are failures. Failures in yourself, failures in others. Things that you hoped you would never do, you do. Things you hoped you'd never say, you say. And you begin to look within. And hopefully, by continual repentance, the Puritans talked about that a lot back in the 1600s. By continual repentance, you will learn. You will hopefully avoid this, the frustrations, where you get down. You will grow through those. Dark days, days when you just want to pack it in, days when, you know what, what in the world am I doing here? I have those. I continue to have those. You have those. We all wonder, and that's why we need this time of refreshment when we come together, even around the table this morning, our weary souls repair. 
right? We need that. But then there comes a time in every aspect of the work of God where you finish the part that you're touching. It doesn't mean the work is finished because it's not my work. It's not our work. It's God's work. But he will use you in one capacity and use me in another capacity. And though times will come, well, he will move us on. And the work will grow and it will expand. And the book of Acts is filled with these kinds of things. But here's what I really take with me. It's the faces. Faces of individuals whose lives have been touched, who have come to know Jesus Christ. We have become friends. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of them are gone to heaven because sometimes the lifestyles they've come from has taken life from them. But they'll be in heaven and we'll be together forever. When I think back really quickly, I'll show you where we've come from so you have an idea. We came from, when we first moved to Mexico, we moved down to the state of Jalisco uh, in Puerto Vallarta. We spent about two years in Puerto Vallarta, and after that we moved further north to the city of Chihuahua, Chihuahua, in the mid-central region of the country. Um, bad, hard time up there, actually. Then we moved south by Mexico City to Pichuca, Hidalgo, a little colony outside, and now we are up in the northwestern part in the state of Sonora, right on the border with Arizona, right where Arizona meets California, and back and forth between Baja California and the state of Sonora, Mexico, and that's where we focus our efforts. I also get over to Mexicali and Tijuana and move around these regions. In all of my travels and all my journeys, I want to leave this impression with you because I do not know what you think of when you think of Mexico. But Mexico is a beautiful, beautiful place. And you'll see some images here. The Socalo where the big flag is where they give the grito for the independence and the revolution of people that have struggled. The mariachi bands that will play for your funeral, your wedding, or anything other that you have going on in your life. The beautiful food. Comida Mexicana, there's nothing better. The salsas, the guacamole, the fresh way it's prepared and you eat on the street. It's nothing like it. The artisan work, the handcraft work, the, the colors, the people that put their heart and soul into the dances, into the dresses. Every state has its own dance, its own dress. Football, soccer will kill you. Don't even mess with the Mexicans. We know how to play. Massive stages, beautiful arts, music. It, it has culture. It has great cathedrals, great basilicas. It has indigenous people who make their wares and sell them and become part of the fabric of life. This is a kitchen I ate in down in Chiapas. This is the meal I ate, but that was even great, and the coffee was even great. It was. It really, really was. And this was a meal they gave me at a conference I spoke at with 2,500 people at it. They killed the cow that morning. I watched them as they killed the cow, and that was my part of the cow. And then you get these kids. And these are the faces that stick with you. These are the faces that you remember. This is why they become precious to you. You have the same experience, undoubtedly, in the way that you reach out into the lives of other people. And that's why, for me, we say, Mexico, quindo, uh, lindo y querido, loved and beautiful. So remember Mexico and pray for us. But Mexico is a place of tremendous need. I say it's a place of tremendous need because you often hear of Iraq and Iran and the Middle East and Syria and crimes and deaths but if you were to stack this up, this chart's about three or four years old. But if you look at the murders and the deaths in Mexico compared to Iraq and compared to Afghanistan, we blow them out of the water. Right now, we're on a wave of violence in the city I live in. There's shootings and murders every day. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It's all about this stuff, the money. But notice the money. That little stuff in the front, the four, that's Mexican pesos. But look at that in comparison to the quantity of the greenback, the dollar. The American dollar, your dollars, 
This is what fuels the problems where I live. That's what fuels these guns, these shoulder-held rocket grenades. That's what produces these gun battles that you see, that we see daily, and leaves behind it the cost of lives that will never be recovered. Gang warfare, people hung from bridges, mutilated bodies. They just found 43 in a hole just outside the town we live in. And mothers that are left to grieve and wonder where their children are. Sometimes when it's a public outcry will come and they will picket and they will protest and they will stand up. And this was in Iguala, in Guerrero, where there was 43 students. And it wasn't just the narcos that took them. These were actually people dressed in government uniforms that took them. They've never been heard of or seen of since. 43, gone. The hearts of Mexicans cry out for justice. But it's hard to get it in a country that is founded on corruption. The rule of law is suspect at best. And it matters not who's in office. You're likely not going to see your hopes and dreams of justice fulfilled. Not before the Lord comes. Because of that, it's a society where drugs and access to drugs is prevalent and easy. Children start cocaine at 10. Meth, ice, crystal, anything you want, when you want, any kind of pills, any kind of prescription medicine, anything you want, any time you want it, is readily available and cheap. It's within your budget. But these are faces of people, Nacho, who's a heroin addict. I love Nacho. He's in heaven today. He got saved. This was his arm when I first met him. And between his fingers, and behind his ears, and between his toes, anywhere he could get a needle in. We go to the drug centers, and we preach the gospel, and we tell people about the love of God for lost sinners. Because they are seeking something. Just as we are seeking something. And the answers are only found in Jesus Christ. This is a little street. Ramirez in Chihuahua had three crack houses on this little street. This is a little Belen and Christian. Their parents are dead now. These are little kids that we come and we meet and we try to put the gospel into their hearts and into their souls and teach them young that there is a life that is worth living. There is a hope for tomorrow beyond just a bag of chips, beyond begging on the side of the road to get something that will hold them together till the next day. Or going to the dump. This is a picture I took. This, is out, this one's actually outside Puerto Vallarta. People that actually build homes out of cardboard on the dump and live from the supplies in the dump. But it's a, it's a country filled with religious confusion as well. Without talking about the confusion of Mormonism, the confusion of Jehovah's Witnesses, the confusion of Luz del Mundo, another sect whose apostle they believe is in Guadalajara, and he's built a massive monstrosity that's now reached into the U.S. and into Houston. Besides all the other perversions, just the popular religion of, that has been the, the, the backbone of the country has caused confusion. People are devout. They will come on their knees. They will worship La Virgen de Guadalupe, the Virgin of Guadalupe. You'll see these boxes. Deposit your money here for your miracle. Put your money in. Make your petition to her. Stand on a moving sidewalk. You'll be brought below her image where you'll be able to worship her and see her in her basilica, in her cathedral, in Mexico City. The thousands and the throngs will come and they will watch and they will hope that she will answer their cries. They will make pilgrimages for miles, up to 100 miles, and bring pictures of her, bring statues of her, bring things on their back. They'll go on their knees. And they'll do this in the hopes of meeting the need of their heart and their soul that can only be met by Jesus Christ. But this is a country that, that keeps a hope 
even when hope fades. But the only hope and the greatest need is the gospel. We left, and when we left and went to Mexico, this is how we went there. Suburban, pulling a trailer and some bikes from the roof. Um, when we got there, this is what we looked like. Yep, little family, and that was me. We did a lot of work with kids, and I'll let these pictures just flow through really quickly as I talk to you about them. Tons of kids that will come out. On the border, it's harder. The influence of the U.S. makes it harder. Down further south in the country, there will be much more response. Our own kids mingled in with these kids outside, under a tree, in a shed, rent a little locale, just anywhere you get people together, give a gospel invitation, give a gospel text, nobody will refuse you. Everybody will take it from you. And most will probably ask questions. This is up in Chihuahua, edge of the city, people looking for a place to live, gathering scraps of wood and cardboard, building their houses. So we built a little place there, went in among them, and began to share the gospel with them. Gave them food, hoping that they were wanting something more than just the food we gave them. They wanted the bread that comes from heaven. Under little kiosquitos and parks, just get there, turn the speaker on, kids come, you give them a Bible lesson, sow the word of God in their hearts. Little local church that was formed there, that picture now is about 10 years old. And there's my boys, Isaac and Timothy, now grown with Rafa and Gustavo. Gustavo here, this guy, he was just killed about two years ago. Shot to death just on that street about Ramirez I told you about, outside the crack houses. Yeah, he, he tried to make some extra money on the side, and you just get on the wrong side, and uh, you're done. Gustavo's gone. Rafa's still there. Talk to Rafa. We're Facebook friends. And, um, but you move on, and you keep sowing the seed. We, we, this is a, literally a seed sower tract distribution. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, that's Isaac. Go to every home, hang them in a bag, put them all over the city, put them all over the colonies, put them all in the little towns, and you'll see people that will respond. That's my father, dad. He was there doing it too. They came with us in Mexico. Put up a tent, preach the gospel, and before we left Chihuahua, we sometimes, if the Christians have that need, try to oversee or help them in the construction of a building where they can literally meet. And this was the last thing I did in Chihuahua before we left Chihuahua in 2009 and moved further south down to the city of Pachuca, Hidalgo. When we got down to Pachuca, Hidalgo, sometimes we would do this. This is my wife in a school. They will let you come in, try to teach the kids, help them with English, help them with something. My wife teaching some sisters, some women in the little church that we saw, um, that we helped and contributed with there. I won't even go into Mexico City, Nezahualcoyotl, which is a suburb of Mexico City. It's a suburb that has 4 million people. The population of Mexico City officially is 20 million. Unofficially, it's probably close to 30 million because there's lost parts of the city where no official services actually go in. Please don't go in. Ambulance services don't go in. Nobody goes in. Nesa is like that. And... Um, you will see the mix. Horse-drawn carriages picking up garbage and sorting it. The best sorting system because nothing is thrown away outside million-dollar residences. That's the contrast you have between poverty and wealth in some of these countries. We moved in 2011 to San Luis, Rio, Colorado. And up here, just so you know, about three hours east of Tijuana, an hour east of Mexicali. We cross the border, border entries like this most every day. 
The interesting thing, this is our little home where we lived. That's our, not the last supper, that's the first meal. Um, the little apartment we rented before we actually decided to live on the U.S. side. Temperatures are hotter, 120 degrees, 125 degrees Fahrenheit, 50 degrees Celsius. That's not a scene out of a Clint Eastwood movie, that's me. Um, dry, dusty streets, rented a little building, just the first floor. Upstairs are our apartments, but we rent this, give out invitations, and people come to listen to the gospel. We gather them, we teach them. Jorge, first guy that got saved. His family was drug dealers. You have two uncles in the jail in, jail in the U.S. We go to the little, little uh, neighborhoods, we call them colonias, get kids together, put them under a pop-up tent, sing songs, teach them gospel truth. They never forget that. Remember you were just singing deep and wide? Here they are singing it down there. <laughs> Do the same ones that you just sang. But these are images, these faces, these kids, these locations stay in your heart. You can't stay there. You can plant the seed, you can share the gospel, but it is God's work and it's the Spirit of God that works in every soul to point people to Jesus Christ, the only answer for their need. But faces that are precious. These little girls are precious to me because they so wanted to come. They look sad there because their stepfather, who did not approve of anything to do with Christianity, had forbidden them from crossing the street to the little tent we had to come and sing the Sunday school songs. That was the last time I ever saw them. I don't know what happened to them, but their stepfather, which th that has all kinds of other signals. That means all other kinds of things in itself, but I'll leave that alone. He would not let them come. This is Nicole and Laura. This too, that's about a two-year-old picture, three-year-old picture. They're now eight and nine. They were just baptized this last week, this, sorry, this, this year in January, and they form part of our church as well. Precious little girls. Kids in the Sunday school. And this is inside our um, little church building. We rent that place. Sometimes it's filled. This is a baptism night. You'll see over to the side here, um, right up here. Uh, you'll see this baptism tank. That's a portable thing made out of plywood surrounded by some metal bracing and put like a, a, a liner that you use in landscaping in it to hold the water. And we fill that and um, then we can actually baptize people inside. But sometimes we'll actually go to homes and we'll preach the gospel in their homes. People will gather together and listen and sometimes we'll bring a little pool and people will get baptized right in their home. My wife picks up a lot of people. She uh, drives what they call locally La Iglesia Rodante, which means a church on wheels. She preaches more in that van than I likely preach behind a pulpit. And what I don't say, she does say. And um, so she is absolutely phenomenal. But that's her van, and these are people she picks up. And this was us when we got there in 2011, but we have grown. And I need to move on because the time is flying. But as you can see, we get bigger. So we took a picture a year and a half ago when they were all down home just to see the changes and to go back in your mind and to recall the grace of God and to think of the lives that were changed. Some of them I've never seen, I won't see again. I can roll through the names in my head of people that have been killed. Some have been murdered, some have disappeared, but ones that have come to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Some I never ever knew if they did or if they didn't, but they heard and they received evidences of God's love to them through the word of God communicated in the gospel to them. So what I remember, and I want you to remember, before we just take a quick look at two big lessons in Ephesians, is that God is at work. Where I live in Mexico, where you live here in Dartmouth and Halifax and the 
greater Halifax metropolitan area. And we're just about forming relationships. We're trying to re live real lives. God is the one who saves people. God is the one who's chasing after people. We want to just bring them in the community. We want to embrace them. We want to help you not only come to know Jesus Christ, we want to see you become a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, to see you understand that it's not just about an escape from the penalty of your sin that would leave you far from God for eternity, but it's a life into which he wants to bring you. And that's why this work continues and it never changes. So what about the big picture? What is it that God is really doing? And that's why I want to look quickly at Ephesians. There are some, uh, there are some key lessons to learn in, in Ephesians. And if I'm going to think about the key lessons, here's what I will tell you, first of all, is that this book divides into two sections. Really quickly, six chapters in the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Just as a bit of a background, this was a letter that was written maybe about 60, 61 AD after the birth of Christ. This was a city, probably the number two city in the Roman world. It was next to Rome. It was a great commerce uh, center for commerce. This was, they had their goddess Artemis or Diana. This was a, a, a city that was very religious. They had built a massive trade around their idols and that they had built for their goddess. And into this Greco-Roman world with different cultures and different societal standards where there's a lot of division, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different languages, and massive divisions between Jew and Gentile, God comes with the gospel. And in this letter, as Paul begins, he's going to lay out for them in the first three chapters positional or what I'll call theological truth that underscores what God is really doing. Positional truth in your life, if you're a Christian, means things that are true about you regardless of how you feel. They're true about you whether you're having a good day or a bad day. They're true because God says they're true and nothing can change it. It's positional truth. The last half of that chapter, the last half of this letter, based on the truth that Paul lays out in the first three chapters, is what we would call practical truth. So Paul says, based on all these things being true, this is now is how you need to live. This is how your life should be different. This is how you should live in community. This is how you should interrelate with each other. That is what Paul's bringing out in this letter. The essence of the teaching and the two big takeaways, if I can name these for you, that I want you to bring with you today, you'll see these in broad patterns through the New Testament. You'll see it here in Ephesians as well. The first is this. It's about me being in Christ. To be saved means to be no longer in your sins. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2. In our sins, in our iniquities, being pulled along. He uses the illustration of a current that just pulls us along, dominated by a spiritual power, forces in the world, wickedness that you can't see because it's not part of the senses that we are able to perceive that is at work to bring people far from God and hold them from God. And in salvation, what God does is he takes a sinner out of their sins and he places them in Jesus Christ. That is the beautiful truth of substitution. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that says, referencing Jesus Christ, it says that the one that did not experientially know sin or could do no sin, there was nothing in him to respond to sin, in a way that I can't explain for you, he was made sin. He was treated as sin. He became accountable for sin so that we, as believers, might become, be made, not something we do, okay? 
It's passive, something that happens to us that we might be made the righteousness of God via Jesus Christ, by him. So when a person wants to be right with God, it's not something that they do. It's not something that they earn. It's not something they work towards. It's not something they pray for. It's not something they build up. It's something that they receive. And it actually doesn't change the problems you have immediately. That's the difference between salvation and transformation, as we're going to see here in a minute. What God actually does is he declares a person who is evidently not good, not righteous, sinful, and he says, in Jesus Christ, you are now righteous. That's what God does. It's the greatest exchange of eternity where God takes my sin as a wretched sinner and he places my sin on the holy, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the sinless one. Jesus Christ does not become sinful. He doesn't become contaminated, even though he absorbs and takes my sin. But he dies for my sin. He pays for my sin. He sheds his blood for my sin. And then God takes his righteousness and gives it back to me. I'm not perfect. I still have problems. I still sin. But God gives me righteousness that is not my own. Not, thump, not something I worked for, not something I achieved. It's something that belonged to God by Jesus Christ, and he gives it to me, and he says, I now will see you as in Christ. You are in Jesus, and that changes everything. That is the truth of the gospel. That is the sweet truth that says, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what problems you have, whether they be health, financial, social, psychological, drug, whatever sin threatens to grip your life and control it, in Jesus Christ, there is liberty, there is freedom, and there is forgiveness. Because it's not what you do. It's what Jesus Christ has done. That is the truth of the gospel. And this is part of what, what he's getting at here. Me being in Christ. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, he says, it is by grace. God's generosity. It's a beautiful theme. I wish I could... Right from Genesis to Revelation, the good and generous God who gives of himself right through the display of himself in Scripture, all through the Bible. He comes, and by Jesus Christ, he gives us salvation that you can only receive by believing that God actually tells the truth. But God says it's not just about that. God says that's great. As wonderful as it is to be saved and know you will never be held accountable for your sin, that God will never bring you to account and say, what did you do? When did you do it? Who did you do it with? That's wonderful. But God said, that's not enough. Because I'm interested in changing you. I'm interested in transformation. Not just you being in Christ, but now Christ being in you. Paul says in Galatians 4, 19, my little children. He says, I continue to suffer labor pains. Amazing that a man would say that but he says it. I continue in labor pains until Christ is formed in you. God's intent is to see the character of Jesus Christ in you so that you may reflect his glory. He wants us to be one, as Jesus prayed, so that the world might believe. But we're going to learn here the greater purpose of God via the church is to display his glory and his wisdom I'm going to read it here in a second, really quickly with you. To a sphere that we can't even see. See, you live in a natural realm. Things we can taste, things we can touch, things we can see and feel and smell. 
but there's another realm. We don't talk about it a lot. And when I lived in Canada, I didn't think about it a lot. But if you've experienced some of the things I've experienced, you would think about it differently. Quite evident manifestations of another realm. And God is going to display to that realm exactly who he is, the glory of his person, his wisdom, and what he can do by taking people that would never have anything in common, people that are controlled by sin, immersed in sin, under the weight of their sin, and God can save them, he can redeem them, he can bring them into a family, he can let them live in community, they can, they can live by very different principles and, and, and these other fallen angels and others look on and say, whoa, what is that? That is God's lessons via the church. So this is Christ and me. I'm going to read just really quickly, and you can read along with me what Paul says right here. As he writes to these Ephesians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice that expression, in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Your blessings come because you are in Christ. It is in Christ you have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, not individually like that, but he chose us as in Christ. Won't get into that, but, but God, in Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed, even as God picks up an Abraham and uses them. Israel, and by Israel, God, they had a message for the world. They never really lived it out. In Christ, God brings blessing to a world that will receive him. So that those that are in Christ recognize exactly what God is doing. Chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestinated us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's why it's all linked to Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us and I hope you can see that I didn't pick the wrong color. This is the first time Paul gets at the clue of what God's doing. The mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus Christ. God's going to bring it all to fruition in Jesus Christ. In him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what's his purpose? What's his plan? Bring everything together in Jesus Christ. But Paul's going to expand on this now. 
So he begins by laying this out, our blessings. In the last half of chapter 1, he gets into our identity as being in Christ. Then he lays out in the first part of chapter 2 what the essence of this gospel is, where God found us, where God picks us up. And then he gets into the second part of chapter 2, and he says, remember, remember where God found you. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both. Paul's talking about Gentiles and Jews, the two broad divisions in a multicultural society filled with division. God has brought us together. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. Do you see what God's at work doing? He took what was actually a hindrance and he brings us together in Jesus Christ. He takes that wall, and he just buries it down. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity, one new man, one new thing in place of the two. So making peace. Now Paul's building to something here. He's going to reconcile us both to God and to each other via the gospel. But remember, this is where Paul's going, and this is a conclusion. I just want to show you this verse in chapter 3, because this is the pinnacle of what God's doing. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages by God who created all things. So that through the church, through this new entity, through these new relationships, through this new community, through sinners saved by God's grace, transformed, learning to live together with the character of Christ being developed in them, that we might display something. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's not Ottawa. That's a sphere that you can't see. That's a spiritual battle that rages the only interest that the devil or his demons has is that God not get glory. That he be robbed of everything that is rightfully his. And God says, I will use the very thing you attack to display my glory and my wisdom. You look at this people who were not a people and are now a people. You look at these sinners and see them now as saints. You see a people that lived hating each other and hateful and enemies. And now they live in peace, and they are one in Christ. That is a message that just doesn't convince an unbelieving world. It's announced to a sphere that you and I can't even see. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you know what Paul says after this? He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. He said, I'm going to pray. This is one of his beautiful prayers of Paul in the last part of chapter 3 of Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees, that he may grant you to be strengthened. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He says that you may be filled. He's thinking about the believers and what they need now. And then he comes to this practical section, which we are not going to touch, chapters 4 through 6, and he says, Therefore, 
I'm coming now based on everything that God is doing, based on his purpose, based on the big picture, based on the plan. Please, I urge you, I implore you, I plead with you. Can you live your life in such a way that's in keeping with what God's trying to do? Can you please be guarded about how you walk? Can you be choiceful in your decisions? Can you think twice before you criticize, before you divide, before you break, before you assault? You need to live the calling with which you have been called. You need to put away certain things. You need to add on certain things. You need lives that are different. He has messages here for husbands. He has messages here for wives. He has messages here for children. He has messages here for employers, for employees, for a society, a new society in Christ Jesus that we may display the manifold wisdom of God. This is, if I may sum it up like this, this is the transformation, the salvation and transformation of sinners for the creation of community and all to the glory of God. That is broad picture, big perspective, sailing over at 40,000 feet, not into the weeds. We're not pulling apart words and parsing verbs. Just look at the big picture. That's what God's doing. He's saving and transforming sinners. He's putting them into community. All that his glory might be displayed to an infernal sphere that hates him. So you know what that means? It's not about you. <laughs> and it's not about me. It really, really is about him. And that's why the gospel is so key. The purpose of the gospel is to display the glory of God by saving you and transforming you and changing you. But God has a power of the gospel, you see. Because the power of the gospel is what will actually do that. God does this. He takes it upon himself to actually produce this. He doesn't make you produce it. You know why? Because we're broken. We came from the hand of God, an image. We're image bearers of God. Imago Deo. And we reflect something of God still. The reason why you have personality, the reason why you have emotions, the reason why you respond sometimes the way you do is because you have come from the hand of God. But we are a fractured, we are a broken image. And if the gospel can't take a man and make him new, not just as my father would have said, I remember him as I was growing up, put an, an, an old man in new clothing, but put a new man in old clothing. God does both. He changes what is visible on the outside, but more importantly, he first changes here what's on the inside. This is the power of God in the gospel, but you know something. If the gospel cannot do this, if the power of the gospel can't transform, then there really is no gospel. It fades away, and what we're left with is religion. And religion is empty. Religion will leave you doubting, striving, seeking, working, paying for nothing. The gospel, the purpose for God, the power displayed in our lives. And that's why the power of God in the gospel not only delivers you from eternal judgment, not only forgives you from your sins, as important as that is. Don't underestimate that. The reason I came to Christ is I felt the burden of my sin but that's not the only reason God saves. By the gospel, what, the God, can, what God does is he takes our brokenness and he turns it into blessing. He takes our despair and he gives us a, an eternal hope. He takes our bondage and he gives us liberty. He takes our blindness, our spiritual blindness, and gives us vision. 
the pain that nothing can erase, he gives it peace. And to our deepest questions, he gives us answers. And in our loneliness, in a world that is so full and yet so lonely, he gives us family, he gives us community. That's what God does via the gospel. He takes our wounds just the way he found us, and he turns them into scars. I want you to think of the significance of that, because the first time I thought of that, it really affected me. Wounds hurt. When somebody jabs you somewhere where it hurts, if it's still a wound that has not been cured and healed, leaving a scar, it pains. There are things in your lives, things in your life, things in my life that we don't want to talk about. They're painful areas. They're hurtful areas. They're things where we've been wounded. But you know what God does by the gospel? For believers, is he takes a wound and he makes it a scar. You know the difference between a wound and a scar? A scar tells a story. Nobody goes around, well, guys do this. Do you do this in your Saturday morning meeting? Come in, hey, look at the scar. I got on my arm right here. Man, you should have seen the jump I was doing. I was sailing so high and... We love to tell the story, right? It's a scar. Scar tells a story. But if you come in and your arm's all jagged and blood is gushing out, <laughs> let me tell you what happened. No, you're not going to do that. Because wounds are hurtful. Scars tell a story. And what God does in the gospel is he takes your wounds and he makes them scars. And can I tell you this? Remember this quote. The nonfiction, the nonfiction version of our story is where our power for God lies and where God's power in the believer, in you and in me, is manifested. That's why we need to live transparent lives. That's why brokenness in a safe setting with the right people can be talked about. That's where God's power lies. To see somebody taken from slavery, from addiction, from abuse, from sin, where they have felt the weight of a world upon them and like no one has ever loved them. And God turns those wounds into scars. And when they tell a story, it hits home. This is how God will display in our communities to an infernal sphere his wisdom. There's no God like our God. We want to hide behind masks, but when we do that, we limit God's power we deny it, actually. We deny what he wants to do in us. We say we're one thing, we're really something else. We say we're not this, we really are. These are the things that happens. But God's power is most displayed in us when the nonfiction version of our story is shared. The gospel transforms us then because of this from strangers to citizens. It brings us home. Ephesians 2 says, Consequently, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. The gospel not only takes you from a stranger to a citizen, but it brings you from darkness into light. Ephesians 5 says, You were formerly darkness. Now are you light in the Lord. Live like children of light, trying to learn what is well-pleasing to the Lord. Not only strangers and citizens, darkness to light, but from filthy to washed. 1 Corinthians referencing a long list of horrid sins that characterize the lives of many of us. Paul says, some of you were these things, filthy and unrighteous, but you were washed. You 
were sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Brings you from being distant to near. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These are the things the gospel does. It takes you from being a slave to being a son. No longer a slave, but a son. And now an actual heir of God. The gospel takes you from being old to new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Do you love the verse? Do you not? Anyone's in Christ Jesus. He's a new creation. Old has passed. New has come. God says it. God declares it. That's positional. But the practical outworking of that is what interests our God. That's why there's a transformation that must follow salvation and a gospel that leaves out God's power and transformation to only focus on forgiveness. It's a gospel that's missing half of the plan, or maybe more of the plan, actually. The gospel takes us from being a nobody to somebody. Peter said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were nobody, not a people. Now you are the people of God. No longer a nobody, now you are a somebody. That gives you worth. That gives you identity. That gives you hope. That gives you a ray of light on the darkest and cloudiest of Halifax days. I am somebody. I belong to Jesus Christ. And that's why these truths are characterized in these two expressions I hope you will never forget. Salvation is me in Christ. But the other side of that coin is Christ in me. Transformation. That is God's purpose. That is God's plan. But there's a struggle, isn't there? I'm not going to keep you too much longer. There's a struggle because even though God tells us what we are, we still feel broken. Even though God has forgiven you and saved you and told you your sins are forgiven, you still struggle sometimes. And that's why in community we need to be careful. We need to be cautious about how we handle each other, what we say about each other, how we welcome, how we receive each other. There was never a believer rejected, not in anywhere in Holy Scripture. We feel not qualified because sometimes people tell us that. This is a video I saw once. I'm going to show it for you now. Hope the audio's up. But um, this video spoke to me, and I hope it speaks to you. Turn the volume up there. So the other day I got a message on Facebook that said, John, I love the message of your videos, but not if it's coming from you. There are choices you've made in your past that render you not qualified to spread such a message. And for me, that was hard to hear because the hypocritical Christian is something I fear. To be put in a category like that, I, I could think of nothing worse. So maybe there's something I should have said first. You see, I can't and won't and don't claim to be perfect. In fact, most times I'm not even good. I'll take responsibility for the mistakes I've made and the hurts I've caused. I got more than I probably should. But would God use that against me? Making good coming from my life impossible? Forgives me but refuses to use me? I don't believe in that gospel. I believe in the God of Moses. 
Moses was an orphan and a murderer with a stutter and a price on his head. Yet God chose this killer to be a fulfiller, performing miracles, leading his people, and making rivers flow red. I believe in the God of David. David, the shepherd boy who turned into a king, a terrible father and an adulterer from the start. Yet even with wrongdoings and iniquity, we remember him as the man after God's own heart. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, living a life without direction. Matthew was a tax collector, the lowest of the low, yet they both walked and talked and witnessed Christ's perfection. Did God choose the Pharisees? the self-righteous and pompous full of laws and pretension? Or did he choose cowardly Peter and persecuting Paul to spread the message of Christ's redemption? All these heroes in the Bible, not a one of them was like me, leaning not on themselves, they leaned on God. And you know what God is? He is mighty. So can God use me? or you, I'm here to tell you right now that the answer is yes. God can and will use anybody, even if you only go to church on Christmas. Does he only speak through the preacher? No, God is in a different business because believing in the Lord isn't living a perfect Walgreens life, always doing right. It's letting his light shine from within and letting his word be your tutor. He'll take your broken past, helping you step in to a more hopeful future because it wasn't for perfection that Jesus died on that cross. It was for the unhealthy so the sick could serve the sick and seek and save the lost. Because in the end, these words and these lights and these cameras and this video, it's not about me. It's about God. And with God, it's never about who you were. About who you're going to be. <laughs> Left out the key part. It's a lot to stream through the Apple system. So let me just uh, move ahead of that. This is what it really was going to say right here. It's not about me. It's about God. It's not about who you were. Oh, it's not connected. It just kicked that out one second. Let me do this. Oh, your Apple TV turned off. Uh, well, let me just tell you, while you're trying to connect your Apple TV, did it shut down? E oh, here we go. It finally came back up. The wireless signal is too weak. Okay. Well, that's fine. I'll keep going here because I'm just about done anyways. I'll try this uh, one more time here. Let me just do this. Sorry for this interruption. Interruptions are never nice. Um, I don't like them, and maybe you don't like them. The good news is, oh, it wants the password again. Oh, let me try that. Do you know the password? Thankfully, there's people here who know what they're doing. I'm um, on the English keyboard. I am. Good. So what he's saying is that it's not about who you are or were, it's about who God is making you out to be. Did that not work? Because we battled with it too. There's no one on the end. Okay. Um, what God's doing, see if I can recollect where I was. What God is doing in this transformation process is he's asking you to forget about 
the past in a certain sense. You can remember where you've come from. The psalmist talks about that. But God wants to focus on where he's taking you and what he's making you out to be that you might then fulfill his purpose, which is to display his wisdom and his glory. We get the blessing of that. We get the salvation. We get the transformation. We get the family. We get the home in heaven. We get to spend time with God. But it's not really about us. You up there? It should be. Let me just see. Now I'll click auditorium. And now it's up. Look at that. There you go. Beautiful. Not about who you were. It's who you will be. And so that's why God wants you to forget, literally forget the former things. Because he's got something new. And it's not just that you are a new thing, positional, but practical, you are literally becoming a new thing. And this is part of the purposes and the plans of God. So it's not a matter of you not being qualified or you not being capable. Because in and of yourself, you're not. But in Christ Jesus, you have anything and everything you could ever need. He is the fountainhead of everything that you could ever require to become all he has designed you to be. He's in the process of transforming you. When you look into a mirror, what do you see? Sometimes we see a broken image, right? That's what we see. But when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? When God looks at you, he sees something different. It's no longer that mirror. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees the image and the character of the one that's being formed in you. He sees beauty. And you might ask yourself, why? Knowing who I am, knowing what I'm like, how could God look at me? A, a wretched, dirty, rotten sinner with all of my past and see beauty. You know how God does that? There's one reason that God can look at you, a wretched sinner, me a wretched sinner, and see something of beauty. It's because he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in Christ. And that makes all the difference. And this is the great lesson, the great learning that Paul is underscoring in the theological, the positional section in the first half of his letter. The letter wasn't written with chapters and verses. We added those about 300 years after his letter was written. But in the first half of his letter, he wrote that. And in the last half, he's focusing on what you need to be because it's not about us. Now it's more important. It's not just for our blessing. Who we are becoming is literally for God's glory. That's what God is trying to do. And his work won't be complete until he finishes it. That's what Philippians 1 says. I'm convinced, says Paul, of this same thing, that the one who began a good work in you will carry it to the very end. God is at work, and he's not going to stop until his work is fully completed in you. I'm going to just move ahead here for one second, and maybe we'll actually call it a day. What time did we start? Because I told you I'd lose track of the time if you said that to me. We started about an hour ago, didn't we? I lo lose track of the time. You guys probably don't. I know I don't when I'm sitting in those chairs. I'm thinking of dinner right now. I'm an hour in, so we're done. What I wanted to share with you at the end was how God does this by the Spirit of God. Because Paul gets that in chapter 4 about not grieving the Spirit of God. He's like a light that shines into your life. He says, don't grieve him. 
First Thessalonians, he says, don't stifle him, don't snuff him out, don't quench him. He's at work in your life, let him work. He's like a plant that's going to grow you. He's going to take you from being a caterpillar into a butterfly. He's going to make you into a thing of beauty. Let him do it. The words in Romans chapter 2 is a passive voice. To not be conformed, that's actually a middle voice. That's a reflexive. That's something you do to yourself. Don't be conformed. Be transformed, that's passive. Imperative passive. That means God is transforming you. This is God at work. The only thing you can do is hinder it. Don't hinder it. Let God have his way in your life. Whatever it is he's working on, let him own it. Let him fix it. Let him complete it. It is for your blessing. It is for your good. And it is ultimately his purpose. It is for his glory. But his power will be manifested in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus. And we are thankful that we belong to him. Thankful, Father, for the day we spent, the beautiful songs we've sung to be able to break bread together. We look into the lives of everybody that's represented here, the children downstairs, undoubtedly restless at this point. But uh, you know us in all of our goodness, and we come to you today and ask you to specifically point out in our experience, individually, things that need to be addressed so that we may better reflect the character of Christ. We may never forget the truth that being in Christ may mean we are saved, but Christ being formed in us is your ultimate goal to display your glory to a world that looks on. Take us home in safety. Remember Sam as he shares with his testimony tonight. Remember the work of God in Dartmouth and in Halifax and in Bedford and all these areas roundabout. May it flourish. May the people of God be one. We ask this as we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again. And sorry, I tell you, I could have talked, I could have got it all in if I was allowed to speak at Newfie speed. But I, that was actually,